Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This week we're in part three of a three-part taster in the book of Ecclesiastes. And this week, we're going to think about the goal of Ecclesiastes, the big point the author is trying to make. In 1605, the Hebrew scholar Hugh Broughton wrote a work with this title, a comment upon Ecclesiastes, framed for the instruction of Prince Henry, our hope. At the time, Prince Henry was the Prince of Wales and the heir apparent uh, to the throne, but sadly, he died uh, before acceding. But Broughton wrote this advice to him. He said, Ecclesiastes will show how this world can have no good kingdom. 
He thought the book should be understood in light of the disappointing outcome of God's promises to David in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17. He says um, this, he said that, the king tells us upon his own long and studied experience that all things under the sun be vain so that the throne promised to David must be for the world to come. The king tells us on his own long study and experience that all things under the sun be vain so that the throne promised to David must be for the world to come. And I don't think that's too far from the mark. To understand Ecclesiastes properly, we need to understand what the author himself thought he was trying to communicate. He did not consider himself to be speaking in an intellectual vacuum. In the very first verse of the book, he self-consciously plugged himself into the story of the Bible. Ecclesiastes is the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And the story of David starts with the story of Adam, Adam was meant to be God's representative ruler on the earth, but he was exceedingly foolish in rejecting God's wisdom and wanting to establish his own, to decide for himself what was good and bad. But as we know, that went horribly wrong. In judgment, God cursed the world, or in the language of Ecclesiastes, made it crooked. And the crookedest of all parts is death. Instead of humanity ruling the world under God, they were now destined to die apart from him. But the main storyline of the Bible involves God's rescue of his people and his restoration of them to rule his world rightly. This started by the calling of one man, Abraham, who developed into a nation. And God chose one man from that nation to be king. He was to be a man of the people. And his job description was to lead by example in fearing the Lord, by keeping all the instructions and doing them. God established David as his first king in his city, Jerusalem, and he made him a promise that a descendant of his, a son of David, would rule his people and achieve what was promised to Abraham and what Adam never achieved, to rule God's world wisely for his glory. Solomon was the next son of David to sit on the throne of Jerusalem, and at first it appeared that he might be the descendant to bring God's good rule to the whole earth. Jerusalem was established as the world's preeminent city. God dwelt there, and something of his glory was displayed to the earth. But Solomon and a long line of kings after him ended up ruling badly, being more foolish than wise. And that led to the downfall of God's city and God's people. And as we said, Ecclesiastes self-consciously plugs itself into that story with its first verse. And throughout the book, we've heard the voice of this Solomon-like king, probably representing the whole dynasty, teaching us about his quest to find gain and understanding in this world that God has made crooked. And we see the king has witnessed it all and tried it all, and he has found everything to be vanity, fleeting, ungraspable. Now in these last verses, and we reach his conclusion. And first we see death in the city, and we're to rejoice and remember our creator. In chapter 12, verses one to eight, we get the narration of the fall of a city, but with very familiar language. It combines what we heard in the opening poem of chapter one, verses one to 11, with the king's building project of chapter two, verse one to 11, and reverses them both. Rather than an endless cycle, there is an ending. And rather than the creation of a great city, there is a decreation and total destruction of it. 
chapter 12, verse 2. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. The sun is not rising and going down anymore, but it's darkened for good. The lights are going out on this kingly enterprise. The imagery is originally a reversal of the first days of creation in Genesis 1. And it's used in the Bible to speak of God's judgment. Verse 3 and 4 continue to describe a decimated city. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. See, rather than parks and productivity and industry, those who remain in the city tremble. The strong have been brought low. Work has been ground to a halt. The place is so quiet that all you can hear is the sound of a far-off far off bird sound in the morning. And the singers which the king once took delight in are now not singing so much anymore. It's the complete crumbling of all his work. Even ecologically, in verse 5, the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails. The grasshopper or locust has, its, um, has had its way with all the produce left in the land. It's so full that it drags its belly along the ground. Um, this is a picture of total collapse. And all the gathered silver and gold, whatever, it le- whatever is left of it, remains shattered and broken in the street. Verse 6, before the silver cord is snapped, and the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the system. This is the picture of an aftermath of a totally besieged and ransacked city, left in ruins, a dead city. And at one level, it reinforces one of the central themes of the king, the certainty and cruelty of death. We see that in verse 5, it is representing the fact that man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. And in verse 7, we get a clear allusion back to that well-known phrase from Genesis 3, when death entered the world. And the dust returns as it was, and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. The image of death is quite drawn out by the king. He's rubbing our noses in the sadness of it, the certainty of it, the completeness of it. I don't know if you've seen some of those before and after pictures of Damascus, um, before and after the height of fighting in Syria. But they're pretty depressing and devastating. From beautiful streets with bustling people, trees lining the roads, and full of life, to crumbling buildings, smashed by bombs and bullets, one lone tree if you're lucky, and only a few people, if any, in the streets, mourning for their former home. And before describing a similar scene, the king says in chapter 12, verse 1, Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Because of your ending to come, remember your creator, he says. It's interesting, isn't it, that um, the king has spoken about God throughout so far, but here there is a particular emphasis in God as creator. That might be worth thinking about afterwards and why particularly remember him as creator at this point. Here are just some initial suggestions. It is the gifts of creation given by our creator that we are to enjoy and to delight in during our fleeting lives. So remembering our creator, in part, 
could be another call to do that while we can, before the end comes and there's no pleasure to be had. But it's also striking that after saying, remember your creator, he goes on to describe decreation. The one who has the power to create certainly has the power to decreate. And throughout the book, we've seen the king is certain that after all is said and done, God the creator will bring every deed into judgment. And we need to remember him and come to terms with him while we still can. Because in those evil days, uh, it might be too late. A few weeks ago, the journalist Jeremy Clark, who's been receiving treatment for a cancer diagnosis, uh, was sharing in his column um, some different advice he's been receiving uh, while facing death. Some people urged him to keep thinking positively. Others say, um, well, you've got to die sometime. He's a friend of the scientist Brian Cox, and Brian Cox told him the latest theory of life um, deriving from black holes is that we humans are basically holograms comprised of bytes of information, and it's therefore possible that we, when we die, these bytes disperse into the universe, perhaps to reform elsewhere. Some sort of quantum physics reincarnation. And he mentions a few other bits of advice. But he finished with this um, about his auntie Margaret, which I think is quite striking. He said, and then there is my auntie Margaret, the same age as Her Majesty the Queen, who wrote me a letter last year telling me I must get right with the Lord as a matter of gravest urgency. The suggestion being, I think, without having put into stark words, that I was going straight to hell on a poker unless I repented of my sin and reformed my reprobate heart and walked in the light in the short time I had left on earth. My auntie Margaret is an unfailingly kind, humble and faithful Christian and her letter shook me rather. She finished by saying that she had been moved to write to me such a letter by a spirit of Christian love rather than chastisement. I believe her and love her for it. And if I'm honest, I would say of all the advice I've received so far on this controversial subject, my Auntie Margaret's letter is well out in front. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, the king says. And there'll be a number of us here who won't have got right with the Lord yet ourselves. And one of the things the king says in his book is that our lives are vain and fleeting and it will come to an end before we know it. And we will face our creator in judgment. And the choice is that we can fear him now and it will be well for us or we can fear him then and it won't be so well. And it's not a decision that we can put off forever. Um, if you hear the voice of God calling you to fear him, um, don't harden yourself to it. Now is the time. Um, given a few months or a few years, you might not have the inclination to respond again. Uh, do speak to me or someone around you afterwards um, if you want to consider that more seriously. In one sense, the lessons from death in the city are to rejoice and remember on an individual level. But that doesn't seem to do complete justice to what the king is trying to communicate here, I think. His words are consciously framed in the narrative of the promised son of David. We've seen his work trying to build a great city. And throughout the book, we've seen echoes of some of the wise and foolish actions, mainly foolish, of the sons of David. And now we see the death of their city and seemingly the death of their kingly program. What is God's verdict on Solomon and his descendants' achievements so far? Verse eight, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. 
hundreds of years of Israelite kingship has gained nothing. Like, every, like um, an elaborate game of Monopoly, it's all now gone back in the box. And Ecclesiastes is part of a bigger section of the Bible called the Writings. And one thing the writings do is reflect upon the history of Israel up until the point of the destruction of Jerusalem. And Ecclesiastes fits right in there with lessons learned from the dynasty of David and its total collapse. And it speaks to those Israelites who are now in exile from their land and without a king ruling in Jerusalem. And it takes the reflections of this representative king figure and it teaches people in the first instance how to live as exiles under the sun. How should a faithful Israelite live in a crooked world without a king and a city to call home while they're waiting for God to fulfill his promises? And although there's one major difference between their position and our position now, a lot does remain the same. We are still waiting for the re-emerging of God's city on earth and the final return of his king. As the apostle Peter calls us, we are still exiles, not at home in the world, waiting for the fulfillment of all God's promises. Wisdom while we wait uh, in a crooked world is part of the final agenda of Ecclesiastes. And that's what we see in the concluding comments in verses tw- chapter 12, verse 8 to 14. And that final conclusion starts in verse 9. It says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The first thing we need to do to act wisely is listen to the words of the wise. The word arranging there is the word straightening, uh, used as the opposite of crooked in chapter 1, verse 15, and 7, verse 3. God has made the world crooked, but there is one thing in his world which is not, and that is the word of God, words that are not lacking, but that can be relied upon. And that's because they ultimately come from one shepherd. Verse 10. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Over the last few weeks, we've considered how the words of uh, this book bring delight and work as a goad, poking us in the right direction. And it turns out they ultimately come from one shepherd. As we uh, heard about earlier, shepherd uh, is, the word shepherd is a term in the Bible often used for the leaders of nations as they rule and direct their people. But there is one shepherd that directs the people of God, and that is the Lord himself. Uh, we sung about it a moment ago in that famous psalm where David wrote, the Lord is my shepherd. So even though the hopes of his promised king seem to be in tatters at this point, the words of God are still shepherding his people. And it's foolish to go beyond them. Verse 12 says, My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no need, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Now this isn't just a verse for students. Um, It's been a theme throughout the book uh, that words of man are vanity. In particular, words that seek to explain the way the world is that don't stem from God's word. Just one example in chapter 6. It told us that we can't dispute with God, and the more words, the more vanity. I went through an embarrassing fad of wanting to read a lot of philosophy books uh, to try and understand the world better. And I'm such a literary expert that I started about five books, uh, finished none of them, and gave up. 
But actually, that would have not necessarily have been a great use of my time anyway. Going down that route is a path of weariness. Some people can handle much more of that sort of stuff than others, certainly more than I can. But we're warned here uh, of that, to beware going beyond the words given to us by our one shepherd. God has told us all we need to know. The Israelite in exile doesn't need to spend every Saturday in the library of Babylon trying to suss out the ways of the world and then maybe write his own book um, thinking about the meaning of life. It's a weariness. It's a waste of time. Uh, Only the word of God is straight and can keep you in the way of truth. And we don't need to feel inadequate uh, that we don't know all of the great ideas of the world. And here's a two-sentence summary uh, to someone seeking to live faithfully before God after the fall of the Davidic dynasty, verse 13 and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. There is one thing on the whole that the kings of Israel failed to do consistently. They did not manage more than one generation of fearing God. And even when they sort of did, they failed to lead the nation in doing so. And they left Project Israel in a crumbling mess. The problem Israel had in bringing about God's glorious rule to the world is not just that God made the world crooked, but it was a failure of leadership. The lesson from the lives of the kings is not to make the same mistake they did. Not fearing God has serious consequences of death and judgment. But in fearing God, which basically means treating God like he deserves to be treated, there is the hope of vindication. The message of judgment isn't only a warning to those who fear God, but also hope. God will not allow the wicked to prosper forever. The king said this back in chapter 8. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Ecclesiastes, like the rest of the Bible, does know and teach that there's vindication beyond the grave for those who fear God. So the duty of the faithful Israelite after there was no king on the throne in Jerusalem, was to continue to fear God and to listen to him while they waited for that promised son of David to come. But that experience taught them certain things about what that son would be like. He needed to to be someone who perfectly feared the Lord. He needed some way of being able to overcome the all-encompassing power of death. And he needed to be able to set an example of how to live for the rest of God's people. Now we know, and we've been hearing about um, this evening, that God has amazingly met, and if anything, exceeded those expectations in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Lord himself, come to earth as a man to lead his people. And through his death and resurrection, he's brought life and immortality to light. He now sits on a heavenly throne in his heavenly kingdom. And we might be tempted to say then, oh, that's fine. Uh, We can leave all of Ecclesiastes behind because Jesus changes everything. Well, no. The truth is he does change everything, but he hasn't changed everything yet. We still live under the sun of this world, and if we're following Jesus, we're still exiles. Our city, our citizenship, our kingdom is in heaven, 
And we still live in a world which God has made crooked and has not yet been put straight. All our achievements in the sandbox of this life are still vanity. All the little sandcastles we build, our little careers, our flat on the South Bank, or whatever else, will return to dust. Our work in this world is gainless. But perhaps the biggest change for us, apart from knowing the Lord Jesus, is that there's now a work that does produce a profit that really is gain. And that is the work of the Lord. And the work of the Lord is a carefully defined term in the New Testament. It is the work of building the church, building God's people. That is the work of evangelism and edification, helping people to know Jesus and helping people stick with Jesus and all the activities that go along with helping and supporting those endeavors. That is the only work that will last beyond the sun, the only thing that won't prove to be vain. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the Corinthian church. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If you remember back to our first week and how downtrodden the king was about the fact his life was meaningless, and there was no lasting gain in anything he did. How do you think he would react if he knew there was a way for gain in this life? That if he knew about it, um, how would he think, or what would he do? Well, I wonder if he would chop off an arm and a leg uh, for it, if he'd give his life uh, to the gain he failed so far. There is a work you can give yourself to which isn't vain, where there's lasting profit to be had. Now, one of the things the Reformation uh, achieved, um, the time when people were drawn back to the Bible uh, about 500 years ago, um, was to break down the made-up, sacred, secular divide. There are no special Christians. There is no difference between the pastor or the plumber. All of life is to be transformed by following Jesus. All of the work we do should be for him, One of the big proponents of this was a man called Martin Luther. And he uses an example which is particularly encouraging to me uh, as a relatively new father. He said, when a father goes ahead and washes nappies or performs some other menial task with his child and someone ridicules him as an effeminate fool, God with all his angels is smiling. And that is absolutely right. As citizens and ambassadors of heaven, All the work God has given us to do on this earth should be done for him. The king in Ecclesiastes has told us um, that work is good and that whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. But in the light of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, there's an overriding and overwhelming priority to do with work that brings lasting gain. I hope I do all right uh, and all right job as a father and maybe I can try and help my daughter Rose do okay at school, uh, make some friends, uh, play an instrument or whatever. Um, That's all good. But what will really last, what will really be gain, is if um, she grows up to know and love the Lord Jesus. If you're a lawyer here, I hope you want to honour your senior partners in the work you do, uh, to represent Jesus with honesty and integrity. But what will really be gain is holding out the Lord Jesus to anyone, as many as possible, and trying to uphold any in your office who already follow him. In any job, proclamation is much more worth 
than a promotion. All of our work should be for the Lord, but only some work is the work of the Lord. And that's what's to be prioritized. We're to give ourselves to a work that is not vain and will bring eternal gain. The main thing Ecclesiastes does for us is teach that negatively, I think. If you want to hear the positive side, um, you'll need to listen along to the morning service on the app um, as they're looking through 1 Corinthians 15 and some of the positive implications of this. But I hope we've been convinced uh, of the vanity of investing everything in our little kingdoms in this life. If you're not, I'd really strongly encourage you to read Ecclesiastes a few times over the summer and let it sink in and let it train you to hold more lightly to the things of this life. It is all vanity. It, it will all be dust. And just to speak to a small section of us here, or a medium-sized section of us here at the moment, um, some of us will have Bible teaching gifts, and I hope um, reading Ecclesiastes will be a real prod um, to give up whatever little things we're grasping onto. And to be honest, I've been praying that uh, for some of you. And to give ourselves into costly service, uh, full-time, in a set-aside way, to the work of the Lord. Some of you will know Joel in Cambodia, who we, who we hear from and pray uh, for regularly. It's not really an easy life out there for her, but it's a life that's not lived in vain uh, and is for eternal gain. Why not think of taking some time uh, to, to be trained in Bible teaching and asking the Lord where you can be deployed for maximal gain in his work? Some of you might think you have more opportunities uh, for the work of the Lord in the workplace, and maybe that's right. And we need to make the best decisions we can before the Lord ourselves. But that's not automatically the case, just to encourage you. Some of my friends who have less jobs in the last few years um, say they've had more opportunities to speak of the Lord Jesus uh, than they did before. And it really is a privilege being in full-time, set-aside, paid gospel ministry. Because apart from the times when I'm a total coward, um, there's always a chance to speak about what you do for a living. And I can say I speak to people about the Lord Jesus. We are to fear God and to keep his commandments. And one of the major commandments um, that the first readers of Ecclesiastes didn't have, but we have now the king has come, is to go and make disciples of all nations, to prepare people for his eternal kingdom. Be like Auntie Margaret. Fear the Lord, love people. The king, um, so brought and said, 500 years ago, tells us in his own long study and experience that all things under the sun be vain so that the throne promised to David must be for the world to come. Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only, what done, only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus that under his kingship, the world will one day be made straight again. And thank you that even now we can be part of his eternal work, gathering and keeping people for his kingdom. Help us not be fooled by the vain things of this life, but to enjoy all we can as we give ourselves to investing in the next. Amen. Great quote from Luke. All work is for the Lord, but not all work is of the Lord. I thought that was, I wrote that down. That's really helpful and clarifying. Love to hear Luke spell that out a bit more. So all work is for the Lord, but not all work is of the Lord. Discuss.
He pulls out, tells even slaves uh, to obey their masters and all their work, to view all their work as being for the Lord and because they're receiving an inheritance. And I think that's talking about because um, they're part of this heavenly kingdom and it's about representing uh, the Lord and doing what he's given them uh, in this life to do. Uh, but there isn't anything to discuss. I think the work of the Lord uh, is what lasts to eternity. What lasts to eternity is people and encouraging people to know the Lord Jesus, to be with him in the future. Um, that is the work that will last. So even no matter what job we're doing, uh, no matter what um, uh, person Paul was writing to in Colossae, um, as well as representing the Lord well and honoring those they work for um, as if they were honoring the Lord, um, I guess he'd be wanting them to be speaking of the Lord Jesus, to be representing him uh, and hoping to bring people uh, with them to the new creation. Yeah, that's very helpful. Don't, don't look dubious about that. It was an extremely <laughs> helpful answer, Luke. Thanks. How can I best do this eternal work of the Lord while I'm working hard as a lawyer, doctor, student? I mean, they haven't put garbage collector and other useful jobs. But um, how, can I, how can I do this eternal work of the Lord best when I'm in the workplace, as it were? This is just building out a bit on what you just said. Well, that might be a great thing to talk to the people next to you about afterwards, and I'm sure they'll have some uh, much better ideas uh, than me. I wonder if uh, one thing we might do is just pray for opportunities uh, to speak uh, for the Lord Jesus uh, and pray for boldness uh, to take them. I find that um, when I don't pray, I seem to have less opportunities to speak for him, and when I do, uh, I tend to do that. So what might it look like? Um, maybe praying for um, opportunities, praying for a few uh, colleagues particularly, uh, asking that you might be able to explain something of what the Lord Jesus has done for them, uh, to them, and trying to take opportunities to do that when you can. Mm -hmm. William probably have a lot more to say. Well, I think, I mean, it's helpful. Yeah, I think, uh, don't underestimate the power of living a Christian life in the workplace, even as you speak of Jesus. So doing your job conscientiously, not as a, for eye service, not just when the boss is watching, being honest, having integrity, um, being kind, taking an interest in the people around you, speaking of Jesus, serving in the church. But don't underestimate those things. I think your reference to Colossians is very, very helpful. There's also one in Ephesians at the end of Ephesians there. Uh, okay, how much should we consider God's gifts socioeconomically and spiritually when considering choosing work or paid Christian ministry? I'm not sure I fully understand the, uh, the question behind the question, um, but I, I wonder if it doesn't, it doesn't really come into the floor that much in terms of what you're deciding to do. I think God gifts are in creation, I th and, you know, if you think back to Ecclesiastes chapter nine, are, are things he's given us to enjoy. And actually all people, no matter how sort of rich or poor, uh, how much money you have, whatever it is, um, can enjoy what God's given to you. Sorry, well, do you understand the question better than me? No, I think you've been very helpful. Thank you. Uh, this has been a really helpful sermon series, Luke, which reminds us of our focus as exiles compared to the stark contrast of what the world tells us is important. Yeah, that's very helpful. Do you want to say anything more on that, Luke, just while I look for the next question? I think... Um... I, well, I, I do want to say one thing, which is I do think it's maybe, maybe it's always the case, but particularly of our age, um, the sort of to be fooled into thinking that this world is all that matters, that we're comparing ourselves to other people all the time and we want the lifestyle of 
our, our family member or our friend or whatever it is. And to, I think Ecclesiastes has been, really helped me personally in sort of just <laughs> sort of chopping me at the knees. And reminding it, it is all vain. I won't really live that long and I will die. Uh, and there's much more things to come. There's things to enjoy, but that, that's the truth. And do I want to waste, waste um, my life or trying to use it for things that will matter? Mm. Yeah. This is, it helps build on that. We're told to enjoy what we have because there's nothing better. But isn't there now something better in gospel work? So we should focus on gospel work instead of just enjoying what we've been given up. I think that is really helpful if you could tease a, 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 that, that little... You know, should we enjoy things? Shouldn't we enjoy things? Do we just become ascetics and go into the desert and live on chia seeds and stuff? <laughs> uh, well, you, you might. Uh, I don't think so. No, I, I, I think, again, this is another thing Ecclesiastes I found really helpful on, uh, which is, no, I think we are uh, to continue to enjoy God's good gift and creation. So we're in the same situation, in a sense, as the first readers of it as well. Uh, in terms of being able to enjoy them. There is a, I guess it's true, there is, um, there is another focus. There is something to sacrifice for. Um, and there may be occasions to, and well, there will be occasions to sacrifice um, for um, the things of the Lord. But actually, uh, we still live in the world. There's still great things to enjoy. And the particular things of, of food and, and drink and relationships and, and family and people uh, are all there. And it's, that's the way we were created. It's a bit dehumanizing. Um, if we're so one-track minded, a bit like you were saying, William, that we don't really care about people or treat them uh, as human beings made in God's image. Again, you probably have something more helpful to say. Well, I just think it's absolutely wonderful to be Christian because you, you can enjoy God's good creation. And at the end of the day, when you're staring into the grave and you realize there's so much vanity and what was it all, then actually you have eternal life and you've done it with God. And it's a wonderful thing. It removes mm. that sense of it was just a complete um, breath, a, a futile vanity. Hi, Luke. Your conclusion in week one was that, A, God has created a futile world, or I think God has made the world futile as part of his judgment. Therefore, we should worship him, B. I didn't quite understand the link between these. It seems possibly the opposite. Hmm. Well, I, I think... I think you've under, you basically, I think you've understood what I think I was trying to say, which I think is what um, Ecclesiastes is trying to say, which is um, by one of the reasons, I think in chapter three, um, he's, he, he says that. Um, so I perceive that whatever God, in, sorry, chapter three, verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever, nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. Um, what has God done in Ecclesiastes so far is he's made the world crooked in judgment. Um, so he's done that. God has done it so that people fear him. Um, that, that, that is which already has been, that is which will be what has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. And I think uh, the point is, as we, well, if we do come to realize that, if we come to see that everything is vanity, uh, we've got nowhere else to go um, before uh, than on our knees before the Lord. Um, our life is actually uh, meaningless uh, without him. That's not all God has to say, uh, but I think that aspect of the world is in part um, a kindness of his um, so that we wouldn't be um, taken in uh, by lies and deception, so that we have meaning without him. 
I don't know. Yeah, that's very, very helpful. Listen, this is one which I was thinking of asking you myself, but somebody else asked it, so there we go. Given how the reflection in Ecclesiastes is about universal things, i.e. things under the sun, where does the idea come from that this book is about Israel's kingship? So you spoke a lot about Israel and their king. Yeah. We could have universalized it. Mm. Well, I also don't, so I also don't think it's wrong to universalize triple negative. Don't think it's wrong to universalize it um, in the sense that while I speak about Israel's king, I think it self-consciously um, is from the voice of the throne of Jerusalem, Israel's king. Although part of what I was trying to um, allude to at the start is that actually... Um, Israel's king is just meant to be a man like anyone else. He is meant to be what we've all meant to be, which is image bearers of God, uh, representing him in the world. Um, if you like, he is meant to be uh, the best God's, um, he's meant to be the best effort of how we're meant to be uh, doing things in the world. So I did try, although I tried to speak of it in the original terms, I do think it's fair uh, to universalize it to anyone. Sorry, I'm not sure I've answered the yeah, question. Yeah, you have answered that nicely. Um, I've got uh, a number of lovely observations here, which I think we'll finish with. Thanks, Luke. I've been so encouraged to enjoy God's good gifts, of which there are many, even in this broken world. But it is so important to remember to set my hope on Jesus' kingdom to come. Well, that's great, isn't it? Reflection. Building up treasures in heaven is the wisest thing to do. And then this great reflection which is slightly kind of poetic and philosophical. I found it tremendously liberating to be reminded that our grand projects that aren't the gospel are ultimately vain. There's something very joyful about being able to say, it's okay, of course it's frustrating, but that's a nice sunset. <laughs> There was a footballer who none of you will remember called Eric Cantona, who used to make observations of that sort. But given that you won't remember him, maybe he's here this evening or texting in. Can you take that? Thank you very much.